that again. Good evening. I was afraid that if uh, it was on and I was singing too loudly that uh, you wouldn't be able to hear what was going to come next. So uh, we're going to start uh, a new here. Um, we're going to go back, as it were, to Titus. Uh, we're doing our series on Titus, uh, a series on leadership in this book. Uh, this time, of course, we're turning to chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 10. So it's chapter 2 in Titus, verses 1 to 10. And this is what it says. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything that they do, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Amen. Now, uh, before I open up that text, it is important that we are reminded that this is part of a series, that we have already been looking at chapter 1, and uh, chapter 2 doesn't just start off in a vacuum. Uh, When it came to the opening verses of chapter 1, we saw that the focal point uh, for the text, I'd I'd even say the foundation for our lives, was really summed up in that phrase, Paul, a servant of God. Now, uh, whilst this is uh, to speak to leaders and those in leadership, it is vital that we remember it does not stop there. All of us, as the servants of God, wear his crest. His name is to be found on us. Which means that everything that we say and everything that we do reflects upon him, whether that is for good or ill. It is important then that we are to be servants with a purpose. That purpose is to take the word of God deep down inside of us so we are transformed into his image. So instead of being a monument to our own failures, we find ourselves reflecting godliness and giving glory to his name. And that's why when we got on to verses 6 to 9 in particular, we saw that the central theme there was this idea of having the blameless life. We noted that, yeah, when it comes to a leader, the reputation of that leader can have severe repercussions on the church and on the reputation of God beyond this place. But again, it is not restricted to the leader. Each and every one of us has an effect on those around us. Each and every one of us is to be transformed by the power of Almighty God so that we give Him the glory. That was the point of the text. That is the call of the text on our lives. That we should have a life that is God different. Um, that we would be a people marked by having the presence of God, that we would not be content with simply being near the things of God, but that we would pursue God himself, that we would hold fast to God, and in so doing find ourselves wonderfully changed, 
that we would become the indisputable evidence of the gospel with lives so marked by the work of the Holy Spirit that those who would sneer, those who would mock, those who would deride are instead compelled to praise. So ultimately those who are blind would see because of what God is doing in us. Now, this transformational servanthood, uh, this call for the blameless life in the power of God and not in our own, it has not gone away simply because we embark on chapter 2. <laughs> Indeed, the call of God has not weakened over the centuries. The power of the gospel has not been dulled because of time. As such, the passage that I've just read actually returns to these themes, calls again, so that in the opening verse in chapter 1, we see again the importance of having sound teaching. The call for the transformed life is actually throughout, but particularly in verse 7. And the idea that we live these lives, attracting glory rather than shame to the name of God, is found in verses 5, 8, and 10. So whilst Paul will go on to describe some of the expected behavior of older men, older women, and slaves, we actually start in verse 1 here, where that combination of sound teaching, the lives that we live, and the reputation of God have all come together. So, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. You know, when it comes to knowing God, there is no substitute for the Word of God. And there is great responsibility placed upon those who would teach from it. Now, this clearly applies to what I'm doing right now, which adds a level of tension in the room, I have to say. This is a serious thing. But if you think that that is all that is being talked about, then I'm afraid you are somewhat remiss. You see, the Word of God, the teaching that we pass on, is to be central in everything, first of all, that takes place here. Um, everything that you do at home, when you're teaching at home, the Word of God should surely be central to that. When we send our children off to Sunday school, uh, it is in the expectation that the Word of God will be central there. And so too, the Monday Club, mainly music, our home groups, the Bible studies, the teaching that goes on all over this place. Uh, when we're talking to each other, when we're trying to build each other up, when we come alongside each other, uh, when you come along to the pop-up cafe, when you speak to the young mums, when, when we visit people who are in a need, surely the Word of God is central to all that we do. What we teach, by what we say, by what we read, by what we do, it should be, as it says here in verse 1, with what accords with sound doctrine. So yes, of course, it refers to what happens up here on a Sunday, but it should go beyond that. It shouldn't just be that you take what you hear today and you go home and you just kind of put it on a shelf alongside some of the other ones and think, oh, that was good, or maybe not. It should make a difference and it should be passed on. It should make a, a real change in us. So we live a life that accords with the sound doctrine. Uh, but of course, uh, when Paul is saying this, he is saying it in the context of the rebuke that came just prior to it, at the end of chapter 1. 
You see, those who teach with what, of course, is sound doctrine are the contrast to what we read of in verse 16 with these people who uh, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So these people who would claim that they know God, well, they undermine such a claim by what they do, by how they live. They deny any knowledge of them by the things that they do. I don't know about you, but it reminds me of the words of Jesus in in Matthew 7, verse 23. Uh, You have all these guys claiming great things in his name. Jesus, who did this for you. Jesus, who did that for you. And his response was, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of iniquity. When I was talking about the blameless life in uh, Titus chapter 1 verses 7 to 9, I said that to know God is to be changed by God. I mentioned how uh, the Hebrew word uh, to know is yada, uh, which is not enough simply just simply to, to, to know of things. It is the knowledge that you gain through experiencing something or someone. To know God is to know what it is to have the Holy Spirit dwell within you, to take what was dead and make it alive, to have blind eyes opened and to be forever different. And at the very least, to want to be different. The people described at the end of the first chapter, they're teaching. They have uh, positions of power when it comes to the church, but they do not know God. They may well have read about him, they may well know about God, but they don't know God. They have not been changed. And that is evident because there's a a complete lack of knowledge of their Savior when it came to that life-changing power of God, which is completely absent in their lives. So here in chapter 2, as a contrast, we are encouraged alongside Titus to be different from these men. We're called upon to prove the truth of what we've been taught by knowing God and then living lives that scream out, I am a child of the Most High. I am being changed daily to be more like Him, transformed by His power and all because of His love and mercy. And so whilst each and every one of us has a sign over which says under construction, whilst each and every one of us is not the completed thing, there should be inside of us that desire to be different, that desire to be more godly, to reflect God to a greater degree. And this is why it is important that our leaders teach well. That's why it's important that each of us is called to learn and pass on the sound doctrine. Not just as a, as a list, not just as a, a, a collection of wise sayings, but as the very means by which our lives are changed. The message that we bring is to be the message of the Savior. A message that declares that Jesus Christ came to die for the penalty of sin and to give eternal life as a free gift. A message which proclaims his victory over Satan's rule and sin's reign. A message which says that the lives of those who put their trust in him are to be forever changed. And so that is why we are called upon to reflect godliness. 
Because when our lifestyles fail to reflect the character of God, we neutralize our testimony. We neutralize the claims when we say that Jesus Christ is the way. And as such, uh, the rest of this epistle, um, this chapter, chapter 3, it goes on to show how the gospel should be seen in the things that we do. So there's a lot of focus on the things that we do. But do you see the overarching theme that our lives are to be God different? Well, that's verse 1. The rest of the material, uh, verses 2 to 10, I mean, uh, amazing material, jam-packed with things. Um, uh, There's a couple of people that met with me in the middle of the week, and they they could see the quandary that I was in, because I had four different sermons that could quite happily come out of this material. Um, But fortunately, that that, uh, lifeline, as it were, of knowing that we're doing a series on leadership meant that I had to focus just on one of them. So we should probably finish on time. But bearing in mind that I've been called to do leadership when it comes to Titus, I looked at these verses and I thought to myself, well, what do they actually tell us about leadership? A fair question, I felt. Well, I I want you to note here that there is a great responsibility placed on teaching from verse 1, but all the way through. And that responsibility of teaching, well, may well start with the leaders, but that's not where it stays. The responsibility for teaching is passed on. There is a sort of devolved leadership going on in this text. In verses 2 to 6, we see the role of the mature Christian in instructing others. Uh, Some texts will just go with... uh, the, the old amongst you, uh, the older men, the older women. And uh, that's fair enough. The word uh, that is used there, the Greek word there, is very often used to describe um, age, a great age. Uh, the same word is used in Luke, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. Zechariah the priest, uh, he's been told that he's to have a child, that his wife is going to, to bear his child. And he is, to be fair, somewhat surprised. And his response is this. How shall I know this? For I am... An old man. And my wife is advanced in years. So his response, I am old, and my wife is even further on in years, uh, shows that this word can very often just simply mean uh, an old age. However, the point of the term here in Titus is not just simply that you've managed to get to a good age. That in itself is not the qualification that we're looking for. It is sadly possible to be a Christian who lives in a manner that demonstrates very little of that changing power of God. I've always found it somewhat sad um, when I'm sat and I'm listening to people giving their testimonies. Uh, People who've been saved for for, uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 years or more. And all they've got to say is that, that God saved them 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago or more. And then just silence. You know, where is it? Uh, that message, that wonderful testimony of what has God done with you this year, this month, this week? What is God doing in you right now? What is the testimony of a living God in your life today? Those lives that are 
quiet. I suppose, I guess, I'm, 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 uh, I don't really know, but I guess that those lives can be somewhat easy. When you're a Christian, it kind of blends into the background. It doesn't really stand out with that God-different life. Those lives that seem devoid of fellowship of Jesus Christ. Christians who are unthreatening to the world. They're going to heaven, but never really living on earth. Um, I, I do quite frequently get asked, why am I so passionate about Jesus? Uh, it, it comes up every now and again, I'll be honest. What surprises me, though, is when Christians ask me, <laughs> why are you so keen? <laughs> I can say, well, look, the same Jesus Christ that I serve is, is the same person you serve. The Holy Spirit that lives in me is the same as in you. But... I'm not willing to be a comfy Christian. I'm not willing to be a chameleon that just blends into the background. It's easier, but it's dull. It is better to shine with Christ. You know, when you pursue him, when you think more about him and glorifying him than your comfort or your own life, then you find that your Christian life shifts gear. The thrill of life returns. Prayers get answered. And you realize that Jesus really does bring life. Not as a distant prospect in the future, but now. And so what I'm saying is it's not enough to just simply add some years. But if those years have been filled with a maturing, if those years have been filled with fellowship with Christ, then what you have to say is worth more than gold. So given that caveat, (laughs) that we have the mature in mind, Notice what the text says about leadership. For in these verses we find that everyone who is mature has a role to play. Now, I'll be entirely honest with you, just as an aside. Most leaders don't like this idea. <laughs> you know, most leaders like the idea that, you know, that I'm the leader and you will do what I say and you will follow me. And no, that's not what we have here. We have here this devolving of power to others. In fact, there is an expectation that is not about a man or men at the front, but that each of us should be striving for maturity. And that each of us, as we gain in this maturity, have a responsibility because we are shaping those around us, whether we know it or not. We do have an effect on those around us, whether we mean to or not. And so the point is, do we have a good effect? Do we point to Christ? Do we have a godly life that when someone looks at you can say, like we were hearing this morning, that person has decreased and decreased over the years, but only so that Christ would increase in their lives. I will imitate that person as they have imitated Christ. So to make my point, uh, I want to to, uh, naturally uh, uh, reach back into the Old Testament. I mean, most of you knew that was going to come at some point. Uh, but I, genuinely, I think it, it, it's warranted. You see, what I want to do is I want to look back into Old Testament to look at really good examples of Christian leaders. Really good ones. Uh, but I mean ones that we could really apply here and now in this place. 
I mean, we could look at Joseph in Egypt, or we could look at uh, Moses, and then Joshua leading the Israelites. Uh, we could look at David and his military exploits, you know, with his forces, even when they were tiny and when they were large. Uh, I could go on. And we could actually glean quite a lot from any of these leaders as to uh, what it's all about, to try and be uh, a leader under God and for God's people. But... The most common one, when you go to books on church leadership, and feel free to, to test uh, what I've just said there, and everything I say here, uh, but actually, uh, one of the most common examples, if you were to go to church leadership and church leadership books, and, or if you've gone to a conference or, or had a course on church leadership, there is one name that's going to come up. Nehemiah. It's the name that comes up. Now, I love Nehemiah. I think he's, I think he's wonderful. I think he's brilliant. Um, most of my PhD is in Ezra and Nehemiah, so you'll appreciate I've got a real soft spot in my heart for this man. But then I need to say, however. You see, Nehemiah, the normal example of church leadership, let's have no doubt, the hand of God is upon him. He stands when others are languishing in defeat. He sees Jerusalem restored when all around him is apathy and fear. With a Persian mandate, he goes and gets the walls built in the face of all opposition. It is a remarkable feat, and there is no doubt whatsoever that God uses him mightily. But he's not the kind of leader I'd want to be. He's not the one... I would want to copy. He's not the one that would be most useful in the church context. I'm not going to promote him above all the others for you. You see, when it comes to the health of a congregation and in the context of the idea of leadership being spread out, that there is responsibility for all of us, there's actually an even better example in the book of Nehemiah. (laughs) Um, Sadly, he's maybe the second best leader in the book of Nehemiah. You see, I say this because of the task that Nehemiah had and the type of leader that he was. Because of the task, he was the right leader for the job. But the job was to get the walls built. The restoration of Jerusalem hinged on his participation. There was no room for anybody else. And God uses that to great effect. The weakness in that approach, though, comes at the end of the book. If you go on to Nehemiah 13, which is a wonderful chapter, what happens is Nehemiah has to go back to Babylon. He has to leave. And when he leaves, there's this vacuum, and everything he's been working for collapses. Because he's not there, because he's not in control, it falls apart. And so in the end, he has to return and he has to set things right. He throws out squatters, he moves some furniture, and my favorite bit is he goes and pulls some beards. But he reasserts his authority, he gets the job done, only he doesn't. You see, when he comes back, he finds that there's a a significant problem. He he comes back and he realizes that that things have gone wrong. Um, In verse... uh, uh, 23 and 25 we see that things have gone wrong 
In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. So he goes away, comes back, it's a mess. He kicks off into action. He's pulling the hair, he's shouting, he's yelling, he's cajoling them, he's getting them to take an oath. And they promise, okay, Nehemiah, we promise we won't do it again. And he leaves and they do it again. And so Ezra has to step up and fix it. Only the way that Ezra fixes it, he fixes it so it's never a problem again for the people of God. Ezra, you see, is a completely different type of leader. Ezra was not there to build a wall. Ezra was not there to restore a gate. He was to build up a people who could read their Bibles for themselves. And he was there to, to raise up a people to maturity so they could see the problems for themselves. And not just see the problems, but know full well what they were supposed to do to deal with the problems. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1 says this. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Israel the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that Yahweh had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it, facing the square before the water gate from the early morning until midday, in the presence of all the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. I love this guy. Ezra points to the authority of Scripture because authority comes from God. He doesn't point to himself. He points to the text. He strictly adheres to the idea that God is the only leader worth following. And so he teaches the people so that they would be equipped. Now, I'll be honest, that's a much more difficult job. People are much more messy, much more prone to getting it wrong and letting you down every single day than a wall. It's less glamorous trying to be in the background. It's less kind of Hollywood blockbuster, you know. Now my, he comes in, he saves the day and he rides out again. It's brilliant. Ezra comes in and he teaches the people and he teaches the people and he teaches the people until eventually they come to him and say, Ezra, We've got a problem. And in the book of Ezra, uh, chapters 9 and 10, the people come to Ezra and say, Ezra, we have a problem. And he goes, yes, you do. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> what Ezra does is he makes it clear that, yes, this is a big problem, this problem with, with the, 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 the marriages, uh, the problem of marrying people who did not serve God. That was the, the, the point. The children were being raised not to know God. This was a significant issue. And so Ezra prays for them and says, what are you going to do? And the people, having been equipped in the Word of God, refer to the Word of God, they look to the Word of God, and they come up with a solution. And they are convicted, and they are changed. And from that moment until now, those people have not been willing to marry those who do not serve God. It's quite effective, the solution. 
It's better when disaster strikes that people are aware and equipped. It's better that each and every one of you can access the Word of God yourselves. It is better that we see not that there's a great man or men in front of us, but that we see that the Word of God is the authority. God is the solution. Ezra teaches, he prays, and they act. Now, I don't mean to be hard on Nehemiah. I mean, I love him. <laughs> you know, when I read about him, I'm enthused when I read about him. God uses him mightily. But can you see why I might think that Ezra would be a better model for us here? It's not about me. It's about God changing you, dwelling in you, and going out and being God different. It's about you being able to listen, but then to mature, and for you to be like Ezra, teaching others. The responsibility for maturity doesn't lie with the few at the front. That's the point of this whole text in Titus. That's the whole drive of it. Yes, there are certain things that we can do, and there are whole sermons I could have preached on that, but when it comes to leadership, the whole point of this text is that it's not just about Titus. It's about every man and every woman. It's about each of us becoming mature with God and passing that on. There is a tendency, I think, in churches, not, not just this one, but in churches all over the place. I've witnessed it many times. And what we do is, is we employ a person and then we set them off to go do the job that really belongs with us. Uh, we're very well equipped here. We have a, a community worker. We've got, we've got a student worker here. But the danger there is that we think, well, we have a community worker, so now I don't have to deal with them. <laughs> or we have a student worker, so at least I've washed my hands of them. <laughs> no. The Great Commission can't be subcontracted out. <laughs> it's for each and every one of us. And yes, it is good that we have someone focused on it and helping us and, and, and organizing us and, and those sorts of things. But we are to pray for these people. We are to pray for those in the jobs. We are to pray for our community and pray for the students and pray for our children. And did you see how many children were here this morning? For those of you here this morning, I had to drop off my son at creche. I was convinced I was going to stand on at least one of them as I was trying to get through, you know? How encouraging that is to almost have some sort of health and safety uh, issue. <laughs> but we should be praying for them. And in our own circles, we should be reflecting godliness. It's the job of all of us. We share eternity with each other. We're stuck with each other. So let's try and see godliness coming through in each other. I've got a responsibility for all of you to see godliness come through. All of the elders have a responsibility to see godliness come through. But it doesn't stop there. Each of us has a responsibility to mature. Each of us has a responsibility to see that godliness is being reflected in each and every one of us. And so Titus calls on everyone, the leaders, the mature, and everyone else, as the mature in training. So I like to think of it. 
we all need to take part. And so I was, I was trying to think how I would finish this, what kind of uh, picture I would really want to try and give you to kind of take away. And I thought that I would, I would use Psalm 127. Um, there's a wonderful uh, reference in there, quite a famous one, which describes uh, children as, the, as arrows in the hand of a warrior. A great idea, isn't it? Children are the, the arrows in the hand of a warrior. Remember, the warrior is supposed to be skilled. The warrior knows what he's doing. It's not, you know, arrows in, in the hand of, oh, I know, looking at each and every one of us, um, the academic, uh, the accountant, the lawyer, I know. <laughs> in the hand of a warrior who knows what to do with these. And this wonderful image. Uh, really, really, really works because arrows are a labor of precision and they are to be taken seriously. You know, you have to have the right wood. It has to be shaped in just the right way. The right feathers have to be attached just so. So that when the moment came and the arrow was to fulfill its purpose and fly from the string, it would fly true. It would go where it was aimed. And in Psalm 127, the second half, when it kind of focuses on children, it is trying to say these children are like these arrows. And so you need to take the greatest care in how they are formed. Because at some point, we want them to fly well. We want them to go where we have aimed and to go off in that trajectory. It's a beautiful description as they fly off into the future even as we become part of their past. And there are quite a few young children in and around this church, but that rather misses the point. If you were to read the whole psalm, you'd realize that actual fact this is talking about the church as well as families, that God is establishing his church. Each and every one of us can look around us and see an arrow yet to be made. Each and every one of us could maybe help make sure that the feathers are in the right place. Each and every one of us has a responsibility to see that those arrows that fly from this church, the people that go from here, are flying true in the direction that they were aimed. Each and every one of us need to help shape the lives, yes, of the children and teenagers and all of us that we fly true and give glory to God. That the arrow that flies, as it were, has that life that reflects God. Well, I have to conclude, mostly because I've run out of time, but uh, my conclusion. Well, just like the previous chapter, the call in each of us to live a transformed life is still there. We are to remember what it is to be a Christian, I guess. It's not a religion of rituals, it's not a religion of morals, it's not a religion of teaching, it's not a religion of rules and lists. It's about a person, Christ. Christians are called to know God, to experience the presence of God, and then be the manifestation of God in the lives that we lead. It is to cry out that we want God. To want to be near him, to have him dwell in the midst of our lives, to want him to have him dwell in us, 
that desire to be a tabernacle where God dwells. To insist that he sits on the throne of our hearts. To earnestly desire that we would shine in a world of darkness. And that through us he would touch a broken world in the lives that we are living. And that's why Paul comes again and focuses on good teaching. In contrast to those at the end of Titus 1, we must be taught well. We must be flying true. And through the word of God, we are to encounter him and we are to know him and be changed. Marked out as the people of God. Marked out with his crest on our hearts. But as this chapter that we looked at unfolded, we were to see that the responsibility for the godly lives is not restricted to a Nehemiah-type figure, a charismatic figure at the front who kind of cajoles you along the way, but more, well, to be mindful of Ezra, that each of us should listen to the word of God, that each of us should strive for maturity, that each of us should take on responsibility seeing the word of God change the lives and those around us, passing on good teaching, living godly lives as examples to others. And it is to that that this week I will be praying that in the mercy and strength of God, that that would indeed be true of us in this place. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we recognize that you give us a great responsibility. A responsibility to not just live our own lives and hope that it measures up, but to really live lives of godliness and to see where we can to help shape the lives of those around us. Lord, we know we do shape lives even if we don't intend to. And so we pray that in your mercy that you'd enable us to be a good example a godly example, so that the effect that we have gives you glory. Lord, we thank you that with that responsibility comes the fact that you do change us, that you are willing to change us, and that it is not in our own strength. It is not uh, through the things that we can conjure up. We praise you, Lord, that though we have this responsibility, it is more than matched by what you are willing to do in us. And so I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would indeed be your people, with your crest on our hearts, being changed daily to give you the glory. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.